0: Learn more at marines.com.
1: Oh, it's a goal. Who got the assist? Who got the assist? Hello, so welcome back to the final one of our non-FPL Sonlin to Die If you are listening for the first time in quite a -A 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 while, go back to episode one of WTA in lockdown. Uh, if you're interested, start 18 minutes, 30 seconds into that podcast and just basically catch up. Um, but for those who are with us, let's get back into it. We're joined today by a special guest to round off our look at Sunderland Slide Die. And this week, we're excited to welcome Alex McCain, uh, the host of the Roker Report podcast. Help us put a button, I suppose, on our Sunderland Slide Die sojourn. Find him at am underscore roker rapport uh, on twitter that's rapport is in the french word for being friendly and obviously the roker report um i like what you guys did there and um, you can find it anywhere welcome alex uh, How are you doing
2: i'm not too bad man. thanks for having me
1: yeah cheers alex uh, pleasure to have you
3: on the uh, podcast with us this week we are who got the assist. You can find us on Twitter at WGTA underscore FPL for Tom in the main account at WGTA underscore Nick for myself. And Stag can be found at FPL Stag. And we're also on Instagram now, WGTA.fpl. So Stag, Anthony, what's on the pod this week?
0: Good evening lads, great to be back again and welcome Alex. So Like all the other weeks, we've had a news segment ahead of the Thunder and Should I Die commentary. We're not going to be doing the news segment this week. We're going to get straight to it since we've got Alex here. So I guess what's interesting for us is that Nick... Tom and I were maybe the main target audience of Sunderland Should I Die. We're football supporters, but not Sunderland supporters. So during our watch along, it's it's clear to us that there were some parts of the story that needed to be told from a different perspective from somebody who knows the club inside out. And especially given the fact that there won't be a series now to come following this turbulent Corona riddled second season in League One that Sunderland are going to have. Like there's so many what happened next questions. So brilliant to have Alex here to answer those. So looking forward to it.
1: Yeah, definitely. And this week, uh, the format is going to be that we'll break up into two parts. Uh, the first is kind of a series discussion just to reflect on the series. And as Stag mentioned, kind of have Alex's perspective on it as a fan. And uh, second, it's kind of an epilogue. What happened next? You know, there's lots of key characters, lots of individuals that we were really interested in. We saw the kind of the narrative story arc, I suppose, of these guys and ladies, of course. And it'd be really interesting to see kind of what the development has been since for a lot of these people. But I guess to start off with the series discussion, from the very outset, Alex, what was it like to be involved in that sort of show?
2: Um, well, it was certainly wasn't something that I or we ever expected to, to transpire at Sunderland. I mean, I think it's obviously one thing for the club to sort of, have this uh, tragic fall in the way it did but then obviously to have uh, Netflix weighed in saying um, if you'd like we can document all of this for what will turn out to be a, an exclusive on our site it was certainly something else really I mean we started the the, the Roker Report podcast uh, three years ago now in 2017 and, and when we did we were recording over Skype uh, we all had terrible laptops and you know, I had I think I had an iPhone 4, which I used to talk through at the time of recording that. So to to think that it, it's sort of gone from there to um, uh, Connor, our old host, um, having a sort of like spontaneous, impromptu pod with the owner, where we literally just on a whim um, messaged him saying, would, would you like to come on the podcast? And all of a sudden, um, Connor's in his Toyota Ego heading down the road to pick him up from the stadium <laughs> to bring him to, bring him to the, the University of Sunderland studio. It was you know it, it, it's surreal really just um, uh, the momentum from which we've gone from very much um, a, a little project would start on the side with the Roper Rapport podcast to, to where we are today. So fast forward to what was then the present day and it's 2018 and you've got people from Netflix coming into the studios, uh, people like uh, myself, Graham, Tom speaking to the likes of the owners with the, the, the cameras in the peripheral filming our dialogue. It, it, it was it was very strange and um, I, I I think we felt a certain obligation to, to the people of Sunderland that if we're going to be a, a fan podcast on this documentary, then, then there is a certain obligation, of course, to, to represent the fans as best we can through, through our medium. You know, professionals we may not be, but you've, you've just got to sort of give the best account for yourselves and ask the questions, which ultimately may make it a, to the documentary and fans, neutrals, whoever will be wanting to hear
3: and what did you think about the, the series in general just because I, I feel like there seemed to be a bit of a narrative that they were trying to drive along each episode um, you know you had obviously the episode regarding the Will Griggs saga, uh, saga which uh, you guys were involved with and I, I think I heard on, on your podcast that that interview they kind of implied or made a suggestion that it was only after two games that Will Grigg had played, when in fact that was right at the end of the season where you were sort of grilling uh, Charlie and Stuart over the uh, the failings of that transfer. And then we saw Stewart as well sort of half throw Jack Ross under the bus during that interview as well, when in fact we saw the reality was that Jack Ross wasn't necessarily um, that enamored and didn't really push for the Will Grigg signing.
2: No, no, indeed. As you've said there, Nick, the, the fact of the case is that as January sort of commenced, the, the problem was obviously Major was sold and the remainder of the window, as the, the days ticked towards uh, the deadline day, the need for a striker obviously became more and more desperate. And yeah, Jack Ross at, at no point was, you know, really passionate that Will Griggs specifically was the man for the job. I think that was, uh, as you saw in the documentary, that was Donald really pushing for that. And I think at the time, the, the fans... You know, would have been grateful that the owner was displaying that much ambition and wanted the club to succeed that much. But obviously, uh, as is so often the case, as as a Sunderland fan, um, the 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 big marquee signings that we make, you know, so often traditionally don't turn out to be the players we want them to be. But yeah, Donald does throw Ross under the bus. What he's implying about Ross in the build up to that signing isn't necessarily true at all. In fact, there's something of a dissonance there. And unfortunately, I have to say it as a fan, that has been a bit of a trademark now of Donald and Methven's time at Sunderland, you know, now that the dust has sort of settled and now that we can sort of see things a bit more transparently given the nature of lockdown and given that there isn't much to do really with speculate about the club's future, we can see that a lot of the things that we've been told have indeed not been the case. A lot of times Donald and Methven have said black and the reality has been white. It's... It, it's a shame, but I think to come back to the very first thing you asked there about you know, what was it like as a Sunderland fan to experience the documentary, I think what I have to say is that I'm rather jealous of, of you lads as neutrals because it must be wonderful to watch. Truly, it must be an absolute blockbuster. But obviously, as a Sunderland fan, it it's more like the tragedy of which your nearest and dearest is the, is the is the tragic hero the main protagonist so I mean don't get me wrong there are parts of season two there are much better watches as a Sunderland fan than season one I think the the first few episodes where we're winning more than we're losing just just by virtue of of that is is a decent watch but then of course you, you have the issue that it goes very south towards the end and it's the very same tragic tone that you see through most of season one so yeah um if, if you're not a Sunderland fan, then I'm, I'm sure it's a great thing to watch, and I, I really wish uh, I, I could be you <laughs> during the moments when I when I watch the doc. But but uh, no, alas, I am a Sunderland fan, and it's fairly painful.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think having that emotion running through it certainly would definitely colour the view. I think for us, it is a little this dispassionate and just seeing things as kind of a, like a dramatic narrative, I suppose, rather than being. Something that has an impact on real, on like real people I, in, in a lot of ways, and that's what the fans do in the show, isn't it? They're, they're there to provide that sort of impact to the decisions that are being made mm-hmm. at Black Cat House, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yes. yes. Gavin Craig on their pods points out something really interesting, I thought, which is that dissenting fans weren't heard early on uh, in terms of Stuart and Charlie, and they only came in kind of later on. When Stuart and Charlie took over, were they kind of universally welcomed it looked like from the show that everyone was really happy that the American had gone and you know you've got these uh, guys in, obviously from Easley and were well, there some sections of the fans that were still a bit kind of cynical or sceptical.
2: Early doors. And when I say early doors, I mean the the first like like the the first days, weeks of, of um Donald's takeover. I would say yeah, they were universally welcomed and that's mainly because Donald's promises Initially, is the very first things he really said to the fans was, "I want to reconnect the clubs to the the club to the fans," and in spite of, you know, all of the all of the detractions that we may have now as a fan base, he, he did that very very well. The the fans' main concerns under under short well, I, I see under Ellis Short really, if you look back at Sunderland Till I die season one, it was with Ellis Short um, uh, at a very far removed distance, and really it was under Martin Bain who. You know, as as he made no attempt to sort of compromise, he was sort of the the at the forefront of everything um, at Sunderland during the the 1718 season. You know, he's always sort of sat there on those episodes, um, displaying his watch, sort of talking about how he's up against all odds. And Donald vowed to remove the very toxic business model that that you hear Methven speak about in season two. He wanted to take all of the old washed-out pink seats and replaced them with fresh red ones. He wanted the fans to play a main part in removing the seats and replacing them with new ones, which indeed was an initiative that was very successful. And he promised that we would get a manager and we would get players that would want to represent Sunderland. And he entirely delivered on that promise. So yeah, they were accepted early doors. I think as well, I'd like to think, perhaps, perhaps Emma, um, uh, without maybe stroking our, without maybe sort of like stroking our own egos too much, that Roker report itself did play a role in sort of promoting the image that Donald wanted to perpetuate. And I think by getting him on that podcast, it was it was a really big statement. I mean, it would have been unthinkable for Ella Short to appear on a podcast or Martin Bain, but for Donald to come on the podcast and speak so openly and transparently, it was a a really good thing for the fans to hear and given how removed they'd been from the owner in the hierarchy under and being, they just felt that they had their club back. You know, it was a feeling that the fans needed and for what it's worth, they were welcomed um, open with open arms early doors because they made all the right noises.
0: So I want to bring us back to the, maybe the way that the fans are portrayed. Cause that's, that's something that you guys focused on quite heavily in your podcast, and that mm. we we didn't really consider the fans view all that much as we watched. I think it was, some, we kind of in our WhatsApp group were saying, whoa, the the focus on the fans in your podcast was much bigger. And I think you, you guys felt that it was quite reflective of the fan base and I think season two was much nicer to the Sunderland fans than season one and I guess that's part of the fact that the season wasn't just despairing gut-wrenching from start to finish in the sense that you know the the championship season was but at the same time also you know we got to see Sunderland fans going down to London we got to see them having their fun there and then we also did get to see how they reacted in adversity this time which the documentary certainly portrayed much more kindly than they had with Chris Coleman and stuff at the end of season one
2: Um, I mean look having a a back-to-back relegation is probably going to bring out the worst in in a lot of fans with with the the ire and the frustration I mean I I I think probably as football fans we all show that in different ways me personally it came out as just complete despondency like I, I mean I've been a season ticket holder for a decade now I'd go to a match I'd sit there in complete silence, watch us throw another game and then go home, and it was just awful. And a lot of people around me weren't weren't quite as quiet. A lot of them were very vocal and very aggressive. And I, I, I don't think it's the image that that Sunderland fans would want of of their own people. Absolutely not. Unfortunately, you know that the brute fact is is that if you subject the fans to that much mediocrity for such an extended period of time, then they are going to sort of feel that effect and display them quite visually. Obviously, season two it did display them quite well, and despite how much negativity that they were facing, your your people like your your, your taxi driver Peter Farrer, you know, to to name but just one example. Obviously, I I think he showed himself to be a a great ambassador for the club, salt of the earth bloke who you know obviously bled red and white, cared about his club, wanted it to succeed, and obviously he's joined by a lot of the returning cast, a lot of fresh faces as well in the mix there, and i i do think that the documentary displayed the Sunderland fans you know in a very true way i don't think anything was dressed up i don't think anything was sensationalized i think you know dialogue between fans monologues from fans were recorded and they were recorded the first time without any any sort of like touches or any any scripts it was it was very real
1: cool i mean i think it's definitely true that there's a lot more focus on kind of the wider cast of characters this season and One thing that was notable, and you guys noticed as well, was that the players, the access to the players seemed to be really, really uh, diluted compared to season one. Um, Gavin Craig said there was no editorial control for the club as well. So, I mean, why did the players step back from the documentary? Was it just because, you know, Jack Ross seemed to say to, I think it was Craig, that, it's a little bit awkward to have the the cameras always on him and that sort of thing, or, or was it just because of you know what happened with Darren Gibson and things like that? The players are too worried to maybe expose themselves. Probably
2: the latter, I'd say, Tom. Yeah, I, I would go with the latter. I, I think Jack Ross does obviously make you know several appearances on Sunderland till I die, but he doesn't make nearly as many as say Charlie Methven do or Martin Bain did in season one. And I think that's mainly because they they, they don't really want the notoriety. And I think perhaps if they'll be wary that if things do blow up then their sort of like visual animated responses will be displayed on netflix for for all time you know forever archived online and that would i imagine be something that's quite off-putting to a, a lot of players the players that you do hear from are the ones that i think generally i would i would count on to be the most like politically convenient you know ambassadors for the club you know you look at luke 09 for example Obviously, someone who needs no introduction if you want someone who's just a very, very nice, well-rounded person.
0: But maybe George Honeyman kind of provided that position in the first series, and then he was barely ever seen on camera in the whole second series, in spite of the fact that he was club captain. Uh, Did he get blowback from the fans for featuring in the first series that maybe made him be reticent to do it again?
2: For what it's worth, um, Anthony, George Honeyman has never been someone who has firmly had all the faith of the entire fan base. He's always polarized. A lot of people in the fan base have a lot of time for him. They think he's a he was a hard-working footballer, you know, who did have talent that, you know, he frequently displayed on the pitch. He could chip in with a goal. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he could sort of he could bring the ball from midfield and he could push up with it. He was it was it was quite he could be offensively oriented and he was strong in the tackle. I mean, I always liked him, but equally there were a lot of members of the fan base who thought he offered nothing, who just thought he was taking up a space on the team. And that we were giving him a bit of a free ride because he was a local lad, and because he did endear himself to the fans, you know, not only on the documentary but on the pitch in the championship season. So I think, you know, I, I mean, if I was George Honeyman personally, I'd be very aware of that. I'd be aware that maybe I'm not, I'm not a firm favourite from the entire fan base, and obviously, if things do start to go wrong, then maybe I, I don't want this. I don't want this to perhaps tarnish my reputation, you know, unfairly because at the end of the day he's always been a model professional and i can't imagine that he would ever have done anything to jeopardize that by way of unprofessionalism
3: yeah i saw actually that um he came on um your uh, most recent pod and i guess it was it's was good to hear uh, hear from him despite obviously not being part of the uh, the playing squad any longer he he still sort of holds sundon very true to his heart and and that feels like quite a rare breed in today's football where, you know, players don't really play for the club that, you know, they've always got one eye on, on their future and going somewhere else. And he almost seemed quite emotional actually, um, when he was talking about his time and that something on your, on your pod. So I did find it very interesting. Sort of when he was talking about the circumstances around his, his move to Hull and how the, the club hadn't actually, Offered him a new contract, his contract was running out. Um, Hull were very interested and, you know, Sunderland just accepted the bid and, um, you know, he got a four-year contract at Hull, a championship side. So to him, it was kind of like, it was almost like a no-brainer, despite kind of thinking at one point that he was going to be at Sunderland until, you know, the end of his career, essentially be a one-man club. So I don't know what you thought about that, because obviously it's similar to the Josh Madger situation, as in the club just let him go and didn't really really try and fight for him at all and i guess if he's the club captain it's uh, it's a strange circumstance
2: very much so yeah when honeyman left i, I was i was quite annoyed I, I, I felt like at the time i, I mean obviously all, all all has been revealed since we had george honeyman on the podcast that we just released today and and as it transpires he, he left for 400,000 um, to hull uh, seemingly from from the first offer just accepted like that you know it, it was it was annoying because obviously he's our captain and he had played a prominent role in the season before and he still had a lot of fans within the club who were firmly behind him. So there was a feeling that perhaps he went for a rather meagre sum and he went rather easily, which didn't sit right with a lot of people. But I think as, as it has turned out, a lot, of, a lot of the assets that Sunderland have in the, in the side are being sold off and, and, and they're being sold off to the contradiction of many things, again, that Donald and Methven have said, you know, which is, I think, fairly indicative of, of everything else.
0: That Actually, that's an issue that you guys touch upon in your podcast where the, it was the Jim Rodwell had just been appointed as CEO pod, for lack of a better term. And you were talking about how the big issue that the club needs to fix, maybe now-ish, you know, post Methven, let's say, is it the lack of the link between the dugout and the boardroom. And that's really interesting to hear that like, you're kind of giving up your younger talent, but maybe the, is that just another symptom of a greater problem?
2: Yeah, um, obviously, I, I think I think you're right. I think the problem that we're faced with now, and I, I'm, I'm sure we'll come to this a lot later, is that a lot of the feelings of last season are now going to become a problem this season. Any club being in League One for an extended period of time is not going to reap the financial rewards of a club in, say, the Championship or the Premier League. And as a consequence of that, as a consequence of Donald and Methvin and Madrox or whoever you want to refer to was the powers that be not having the liquid assets themselves what we are now going to see is the club potentially having to sell a lot of things that we would hope would add us a strength. to our bow going forward in the future and counterproductive though that may be to our ambitions it may be something that we're faced with as an unavoidable problem based on the failings of the previous year and indeed the feelings of many, many years before.
0: Yeah, because it's, it's not like Sunderland have been bringing in this great scientific approach to transfers or scouting or where they source their players. Like Even the fact that they were aiming to pick, pick up two strikers in the January transfer window where they ended up just blowing their whole budget and some more on Greg, it kind of indicates that on a football side of things, the club is really struggling in just the administrative sense.
2: Yes, absolutely, I would say so. I think you've just got to look at the infrastructure, or at least what what you were told about the infrastructure from, say, the documentary or just any, any sort of literature or media sources lurking in the background. It doesn't, I don't think, take a particularly trained eye to see that the infrastructure at the club is not only very basic, but I think very, very amateur for the level that we're at. As of as of the eighteen nineteen season, we had one one sort of out and out scout on the books in Tony Court, and you had Donald and Methven effectively at the wheel at the most part for the day to day administration. And I think if I'd see, if I'd have seen Eastley run like this, I would think, yeah, that's an acceptable way to run a club of this stature. But for Sunderland, and again, I don't want to be the the fan who believes he has a god given right to be in the Premier League just because we were there four years ago, I just think that the particular infrastructure that they have taken with them from Eastleigh to Sunderland is one that is going to see us come up short in a lot of financial sort of dealings with other clubs. I mean, you saw there with Wigan, they absolutely had us on toast with Will Grigg. You know, they knew full well that we were on our knees looking for a striker. They knew that we had failed to replace Major and had respectively made a very poor decision in selling him in the first place. If they wanted to drive a ridiculous bargain for him, then they were going to do that. And while it's great to see that Donald cared enough to invest so much of the club's finances in getting a, 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 a striker, really, you know, that kind of cavalier bravery doesn't pay off when the striker doesn't return the goals that is so warranted and obviously the, the consequences now is that we've gone three million in the hole for a striker that so far we're yet to see ten goals from in all competitions
1: yeah despite what he said about him scoring ten goals in sixteen games I think he oh. set himself as being his target while in the, in the Premier in Sunderland. Yeah. I see um, so I think that kind of nicely bridges actually to the kind of the big exam question of something till I Die, which we kind of touched on last week. But with you, on obviously, we want to get that kind of more rounded view. Who's to blame for that failed campaign? Obviously, you could apportion blame out lots of people. But if you say, if you were to say, all right, this person's definitely to blame. Who would that be? Would it be Methven Would it be Jack Ross? Would it be Stuart Donald for spaffing that three million pounds and being had on toast, as you said, uh, by Wigan? Like, so I think. The three of us broadly were saying, well, that probably undermines Jack Ross. And that decision is basically what everything really came from uh, in terms of how the season unraveled.
2: While towards the end of his tenure at the club, the results weren't going well and his style of football ultimately wasn't working. I think Jack Ross had a hell of a task. You know, at the end of the day, he may have taken over a club that had new investment that had allegedly, allegedly, of course, paid off all of its debts and was now squeaky clean for whoever's going to take it forward. He still had a, a hell of a task on his hands. You know, all of the, the first-team players that were there at, at, the, at the terminus of the championship season, a lot of them had very poor attitudes and a lot of them wanted to leave and that left him with very few to work with. He then, with the help of one scout, had to bring in an entirely new team and with that entire new team was expected to win League One. You know, the the Sunderland fans, their only recollection of the third tier, those who have them, was the 87-88 season when they were relegated under Laurie McMenemy and went straight back up. And I think because that is the legacy of Sunderland in the third division, it set something of a precedent for the fans to think, right, well, if we go down there again, we've got to go straight back up. And obviously, again, there's no divine right for that to happen. So Jack Ross, yeah, he had a very difficult task and I certainly wouldn't blame him. I think, like I said, I did allude to who I would sort of pin the blame at really for the, the feelings overall. And I think I would blame Tony Corton and then by extension, Stuart Donald for the the administrative decisions and decisions for how his infrastructure was going to look. I think obviously with Courton he, he he made a few signings that proved to be costly in the long run, that proved to, to leave fundamental weaknesses in our team. He was effectively tasked with restructuring the club and introducing a a style, you know, like a, a crop of players that would fit seamlessly in a Jack Ross style of play, ultimately ensuring promotion. That was always going to be hard. But we had players like Jack Baldwin and Tom Flanagan, who initially the fans were quite happy with, but then you saw games like the 5-4 against Coventry. And if it looked bad on the dock, then, you know, I was there. Mm. I remember watching them. Um, I think he's it, called Bright Inibikari, um who was at Coventry on loan from Wolves. Yeah. And this lad Jory Huwula, and they absolutely tore through them. There, there was a serious issue with a lack of steel and a lack of sort of strength in, in at the back. was signed Glenn Louvins, I remember from Sheffield Wednesday, and that, quite frankly, just didn't work. He was clearly past it, far too slow, far too mal-coordinated. Ali Mostert was a headless chicken and was dropped almost straight away. That left Baldwin and Flanagan, who were, were decent enough, I think, footballers. Technically, they were they were you know, Baldwin was quite good. Flanagan could do the no nonsense duties, but they the lacked confidence. And when games went against them, they really went to pieces. And the, the Covenant game was the epitome of that, really. It just it totally, totally took them to bits. But yeah, ultimately, though, like I say, um, with Coulton, it was still a, a very difficult task. And while I think he got a lot of decisions wrong, I, I, would, I would have to blame Stuart Donald ultimately, because while Corton was a one-man band, you know, it was Stuart who booked the one-man band and it was Stuart who made a lot of yeah. A lot of sort of decisions in the framework, you know, I, I don't think he did them with anything that wasn't the best intentions, but I think it's an experience of managing a of, man, of not managing it, and his experience of owning a club at that level, you know, um, it, it, it shone through.
1: Oh, interesting. Well, you'd have thought with Tony Cotton's playing history, he'd be a safe pair of hands, but unfortunately yeah. it's not quite worked out there. Um, No, interesting. The Donald decision, I think when we, when we were watching the doc and we were watching him kind of Going through that decision process to to, to make the Grig purchase, it, it was really incredible, wasn't it? That he was being advised all around by Jack Ross, um, even by you know the two flunkies as uh, a Fox and Richards to say, "Oh, you know, this isn't worth it, mate. This isn't worth it." And yeah. him ultimately pushing that through um, yeah, at the behest of you know no one except himself just just seemed very odd and seemed very kind of naive almost.
2: Yeah, well, have you seen that um, that David Squires comic where it's got, like, um, uh, Donald and he's saying, right, well, okay, three million, we'll knock back out now. And then he goes, yeah, well, he, we already own him, no, yeah. Stuart. Right, eight million, no one takes us for mugs. That's sort of how it feels as a, as a fan, I think, when I, when I look back and I'm thinking, right, everyone around him is saying, Stuart, don't do it. You know, three million, this is, this is insanity, Stuart. We don't have we got those funds. He's like, no, we, we do, we do have the funds. No, but we're going to buy him and, and again, like I say, there's a certain cavalier sort of spirit there, certain, like you know, bold yet sort of blind bravery that's on display. And it's it's very noble. And it, it certainly endears me to Stuart Donald as someone who cares about the club, especially considering that the the previous owner was one who refused to invest whatsoever towards the end of his time at the club. So we've gone really from one extreme to the other. Really, there was a, a, an absence chairman to one who cares so much that he's prepared to put all of his eggs in one basket
3: it was quite interesting though yeah, with that deadline day decision to buy Will Grigg but I think I heard on your podcast that you, you said about how Stuart has kind of made loads of promises on Twitter and he was doing all the rounds saying he was definitely going to buy a striker and everyone was sort of talking about oh yeah he's, he's definitely going to bring one in and then obviously it got to deadline day so he kind of hamstrung himself a little bit because if he didn't bring in a, a forward at this stage then you know he'd have broken all his promises that he'd promised to all the various fans on Twitter and on the podcast etc and then um, heard that yeah he doesn't really make those appearances now it's almost like the door is firmly shut no one can he's not really doing the same level of comms as he was when he first joined uh, first brought the club and do you think that's based on the back of this decision and sort of having learnt his lesson to it a...
2: I think it's based on the culmination of many decisions to be honest Nick um, I was at a talk-in in a place called Town End, which is in Sunderland about uh, four or five months ago now and that was um, hosted by Charlie Methven. And the first thing he said before any questions were asked was that I'm just going to tell everyone here now that you won't be hearing again from Stuart Donald because of simply all of the sort of negativity he's had on social media. What has effectively happened with Stuart Donald is that while he was on Twitter in the early days, it it seemed like a great thing. You know, I mean, we've got an owner who cares so much about connecting with the fans that he is literally connecting with us on social media, which is absolutely brilliant. Well, I think a fear that we all had at the time is that if this turns sour, what is it going to be like having the owner on Twitter if, let's say, we're losing lots of games? Or let's say we end up losing a player who was highly valued, etc., etc. As it turns out, all of those fears were realised because when things did turn a bit ugly the fans turned on Donald and the fans turned on Donald on social media. They weren't happy with him. They were telling him, you know, this isn't on. You're replying to him saying, look, you, know, you need to sort this out. Perhaps he, he, he didn't make a rod for his own back in that sense because it, he, he did at the same time Nick, say a lot of things that he effectively bound himself to saying, You know, saying that he wanted to get a striker. Ultimately, he did bring in another striker that wasn't Will Griggy, this lad called Kaziah Sterling from Tottenham on loan, which don't think really made the documentary at all purely because it wasn't very interesting. But obviously, if that was the only signing-on deadline day, the fans would not have been happy, and we would have seen a lot of flack aimed at Donald a lot earlier than when it did. So the fact that he needed to get Greg in was, as you say there, perhaps driven by a desperation to deliver on his promises, which again is a great example of, of nobility on his part, but it's, it's something he didn't need to do to himself. It's one of many occasions on social media where I think he shot himself in, in the foot by being too open with fans. One person who's
0: a big part of the show, but absent maybe from any of this blame discussion that we've had is Charlie Methven. And I guess in the documentary, we see how he deals with staffing and maybe bringing change to the non football side of the club in particular, causing quite a lot of friction and trouble. And the fans seem to have questions, but maybe seem to be taking it in. What do you think he could be blamed for?
2: Because he doesn't have as big of an administrative sway in the literal sense over the club. You know, he doesn't call as many shots as Donald does you know, just by by virtue of, of rank within the club. He, he He's acted more as either sort of had a very hands-on role with the marketing and, and the comms and the PR for the club. But otherwise, he would act as Donald's advisor. And I think he would echo a lot of sentiments that, that Donald said, which would turn out ultimately to not be true. He, you know, he was, he, like Donald, said a lot of things that, as it transpires, don't seem to be the case for the fans. And um, interestingly as well, and perhaps ironically, there have also been many occasions where Methvin has said one thing and Donald has said another, you know, only to confuse the fans. There have been a lot of talk shows and podcasts, for example. I think the the first wrote um, a rapport podcast with the owners before the start of the 1920 season. Mm-hmm. Um, we were effectively, and Methvin since has backtracked these comments. He did so at the very talking I was referring to at Town End. He said that we were going for what was effectively a 100-point season. That was something of an ambition, and obviously, to say that is a very, very big statement. And again, it's one of those statements that you've made that you're effectively binding yourself by. But really, who you're binding isn't isn't so much yourself. It's more so Jack Ross. You know, if you say on the podcast, right, 100-point season, that's the aim. You know, the manager is expected to aim for 100 points. So obviously, to say that he's going to potentially be getting 100 points, you know, I think that's quite a daunting prospect for any manager you know, again, I say it as re- respectfully as I can, I-, I just think that a lot of the decisions that he's made, you know, could have perhaps been avoided or perhaps display the same inexperience that Donald had going from Eastleigh to Sunderland, where he's been very eager to set a lot of things in place. But in that eagerness, perhaps naivety is, is, is being born from it.
1: Oh, well, then, yeah, sounds like... Uh... I guess we were aligned in some ways in terms of uh, how we saw the season Uh, but for some other aspects as I'm sure you listeners uh, will have heard there's definitely value in having that insight from somebody who's uh, on the ground at the coalface rather than us being distanced in our near-earth orbit of a pod. Um, Right we'll take a break there and we'll move on to the epilogue. What happened next after this? Who got the assist? Who got the assist? So we're back and it's the second half and uh, it's the epilogue. What happened next? So many interesting individuals and obviously we've started touching upon them and started speaking about them. And I guess the first half is about talking about the series and this half is more about talking about individuals and kind of what's happened since the series. Because for a lot of us, unless you've been a big fan um, of Sunderland or have been following them closely, you may not know what happened next. Uh, The first thing though... How has nineteen twenty treated Sunderland, Alex? How how are you guys doing? I don't think you're going, you're going to get up, are you, if there's or into the playoffs at least, if the season's cancelled?
2: No, um, I mean obviously nineteen twenty has treat every club the same towards its end, in that no one's playing football because of the pandemic, of course. But talking purely from a on on a football standpoint, yeah, the nineteen twenty season's been rather disappointing for Sunderland. In terms of the standard that we've seen, it's certainly not been as good as the season before, which which all the fans will tell you you know, had its glaring weaknesses as well. We haven't drawn as many games, but the consequences there, instead of winning the games we would have drawn, we've lost them instead. Uh, Jack Ross got the season off to a fairly decent start at first and it looked like he was going to have a similar season to the one before, hopefully with a promotion instead of you know narrowly missing out on one. But I think he got to perhaps, I remember it was the Bolton game, it was around... I think October time. Yeah, I think it was around October. I, I might be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure it was about mid-October. We played Bolton away, and I think that was the Bolton team who only had still only had nine uh, senior players on the books. And, and we drew that game 1-1, and we were really lucky to even get anything from that game. I remember thinking, you know, this is shocking. You know, I genuinely feel quite bad for the Bolton fans here because they deserve to win this about 3-0. You know, they've totally and utterly outplayed us, and we've looked completely abject. Jack Ross played a lot of negative football and a lot of it was seen in games like that. And th- that bad form from then, he never really picked back up on it. There was, I think, one more win since that and then became a really bad loss to, to Lincoln when they lost 2-0 away. And again, it was really defensive, really negative. The players didn't quite look like they knew what the system was su- supposed to sort of entail. And consequently, he lost his job, was replaced by Phil Parkinson, who would have a, a something like a 14-game run without a win. Um, somehow didn't get sacked themselves, then had a better run and now we're here really. We had a better run and then in the last two games we dropped back off again. The conventional table has us now sitting 7th but um, according to the the proposed um, points per game unweighted table that um, uh, the EFL are potentially going to use to determine the leagues, Sunderland will finish the season 8th which will um, break last season's record of the lowest ever finish in a league in the club's history.
0: That points per game table may actually feed towards meaning that the league one season will be tried to play out. I'm I'm looking at it here and in terms of like, there's one point separating eighth and third. Yeah. This season,
2: that's been one thing that benefited Sunderland is that nobody has really... Has really had the bottle to go uh, go ahead and, and win and try and win the title at this point. Luton and Barnsley were starting their breakaway I think around this time last season, but um, Coventry have started garnering some momentum. But you look at teams like Rotherham, Oxford, Wickham, uh, Portsmouth, Peterborough, Sunderland. You know they're all sort of taking turns threatening to be a team that could get in the automatics and then fall away again. I think it'll be quite hard if the clubs of League 1 have to, have to vote on where they're going to be. Sunderland, like many others, they're going to have a hard time reaching a unanimous decision because there are loads of different horses in this race and a lot of different decisions are going to benefit some and severely hinder others.
3: Yeah, it all seems very tight at the top at the moment. Uh, going, going back to um, Jack Ross, I heard on your uh, podcast with George Honeyman that he was um, surprised that Jack Ross was let go and he really loved working with him. Um, and that seems to be the vibe that we got from from many of the players. I think the likes of Ada McGee also thrived under Jack Ross. Um, were you kind of surprised by the sacking then? We, we kind of saw on the podcast the likes of Charlie Methan were quite critical of him and Stuart obviously seems quite critical when he was on your podcast as well.
2: At the time, um, I wasn't particularly surprised by the second no. Um, given how the results had been going and how the performances had been, Jack Ross looked like a manager on the verge of losing his job. A lot of the mistakes that we'd seen last season were being emulated and there were a lot of, a lot of new problems as well. I think, like I said there, he'd adapted a system in pre-season and he simply hadn't used the pre-season to his advantage at all. He tried out this 5-3-2 in a few friendly games and it didn't work. And then about three games in, he dropped it for a more sort of mundane 4-4-2. But a lot of players were sort of chopping and changing in a lot of different fundamental roles. And I think I think as a as, as a problem arising from that, we, we didn't really look like we had a clear identity. A lot of the times players looked like they were just kind of winging it. And I think we're getting by a few games just by individual quality. You know, your players like Aidan McGeady, who every now and then had to win you the game by just sort of nicking a goal from 20 yards out that a lot of players in League One can't score. And and that was making the difference, I think, for, for Jack Ross to ultimately be be found out as a manager who was was ultimately found wanting tactically in a few places, despite his best efforts and intentions. It wasn't a surprise. And I think most of the fan base would probably agree with me at the time. It was certainly no surprise that, that Jack Ross was, was going to get sacked.
3: Yeah, it was interesting with Aidan McGeady, who we just talked about. So he, as I said, he seemed to do quite well under Jack Ross, but since uh, Phil Parkinson took over, there was rumours of an alleged bust-up with him, that he was a disruptive influence, and ultimately he was then sent packing on on loan, which seems a bit surprising, considering he was your kind of star man, at least um, in what we saw in the documentary and the start of uh, last season as well. Mm.
2: McGeady dropped away, uh, seemingly out of nowhere, when Parkinson came in. And like you've said there, there were rumours that we've heard. Nothing, I don't think we can really confirm because we're not the wiser as well. But the implication was that there was something of a fallout between himself and Parkinson. And as a result, McGeady ended up not playing. And really, it isn't the first time that we've heard this from, from Aidan McGeady. Obviously, he was signed back in 2017 by Simon Grayson, who he worked with at Preston and clearly had a lot of time and a lot of respect for because he featured under Grayson prominently and he played a lot, and he individually had a lot of good performances under Simon Grayson. Chris Coleman then came in and similar to the the Ross-Parkinson shift, he seemed to fall out of favour quite quickly. So maybe if, if you look at it quite empirically, if you look at the evidence, there's, there's reason to suggest that maybe McGeady has, you know, he, he likes to work for some managers and not others, or just perhaps some managers play him the way he can be utilised best and he believes he's utilised best. And if perhaps he isn't and he's to play a role that he doesn't like or doesn't want, then maybe he does tend to fall out with his managers. Really, I don't know enough about McGeady as a professional and as a person to to make any sort of sweeping statements because I think he played maybe one or two games under Parkinson and, and then all of a sudden he was consigned to the bench never, never to emerge from it. In, in a lot of games where we played quite abject defensive performances as well. The, the shift in what Parkinson wants to do doesn't involve someone with, you know, the rather rogue creativity of McGeady. And I
0: guess one player moving on from McGeady uh, to perhaps the player that should have been a star but wasn't and now has the goal record of a centre-back. So 20 appearances, one goal, one assist, according to Transfer Market, this season for good old Will Gregg. Not on yeah, fire?
2: Anything but Will Gregg At this time last season, Lee Catamull had about six goals. So that tells you all you <laughs> need to know about how clinical he's been. But to be honest, though, I think with Will Grigg, a lot of his problems happened early on because he came to Sunderland with a real expectation. And I think that did way around his neck. I've got a lot of time for, for our fan base. I think that the Sunderland fan base is a brilliant one, but it is a fan base that mounts a lot of expectations on its players. You know, and, and if the player comes with pedigree, that's amplified tenfold. And obviously in, in League One, you know, Will Grigg is your star man. If you would take the two top leagues out of English football and League One's your new Premier League, then Will Grigg's suddenly one of the best strikers in the country because that's, that's the reputation he has at that level. Yep. And the fans knew that and the fans were expecting him to come in and replace Mager and potentially better him, which was going to always take some doing because Madger was brilliant.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: The problem was that in, in the early games, Will Grigg was brought out when he was signed and he was sort of paraded round the pitch in his first game. You know, all the fans were waving at him. You know, everyone was lining up to try and interview him. One of the first things we heard him say as, as a Sunderland player was, I really wasn't expecting, you know, a reception like this. And I think that tells you all you need to know about how it went From His first game that he started at home, there was a great chance which made the documentary where he he runs one-on-one, he's, he's beaten the keeper, Bristons. he's got an empty net on yeah. the left-hand side and he hits the side netting. And it's moments like those that really just sort of, well, as a Sunderland fan, there's oh, going to be one of those signings where, you know, it's shattered from the high heavens how great he is and he's just not going to do it. And I, I think because of the expectations, I think that, that did get to him a bit and it it hasn't fell for him. I think if a couple of earlier chances had fallen for him and gone the right way, then he, he could have perhaps have made a name for himself. He could have perhaps lived up to the expectations of the fans. In, in a lot of ways, it's it's a lot of how a lot of how I saw when we signed Josie up the door a few years ago, but that's a, again, a whole different story.
1: What a hero he was dear me. <laughs> Smashed it in the Dutch league. Oh, absolutely Jose. an absolute donkey uh, for you guys. It's fair to say. Yeah. Yeah. No, Interesting. I have heard from the guys that he's been benched a lot. Uh, Will Grigg, uh, seems to need that bit of luck they uh, made the comparison from Duncan Watmore and what happened when he was just thrown in brought back from loan I believe and thrown into the squad and maybe that might happen uh, maybe with Wilbrigg there was a touch of him talking himself up too much as well he, he kept saying oh I seem to thrive on uh, big occasions and uh yeah I'm definitely as I mentioned earlier going to get 10 goals mm-hmm. oh dear yeah pretty too much pressure on himself um another guy I think of this worth moving on to uh, Luke O'9, um the guy who we referred to several times as being a bit of a Disney prince, just who seems so likable, seems so friendly, uh, seems so unassuming, doesn't he? And uh, the guys on the pod mentioned that he went from kind of a centre midfield sort of slot to being a, a right back or something like that, and he's yeah, been yeah. completely reborn.
2: Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. um Luke 09 he was brought into Sunderland. And um, with the view that he's going to be like a midfielder and potentially like a cam, you know, very much a, an attack and mid. I think when he played at Wickham, he, he more often than not linked up play between the midfield and um, Big in Fenway up front. So I think a lot of the fans were expecting him to play um, a similar role at Sunderland. But when he first had started and he admitted as much himself, um, he was very keen to get himself about when he was just sort of running everywhere like like that that's what he was doing like with in, in when he was first cuz he, he didn't he didn't start initially because he wasn't he wasn't in the sort of starting 11 that was winning games early on but when he was brought on off the bench he, he did just seem to run at everything like like he, he'd lose the ball and, he, and he'd run after it and then the man would tackle him and then he'd run after the man and then the ball would go out and he'd run for the ball it's like if you put like a jack russell's brain in a human's body that's kind of what it felt like watching little early <laughs> does and you know, again, I, I mean that in the most endearing way because he really did try. But ultimately, he admitted himself, you know, he was just trying too hard. And ultimately, once he'd settled down and once he'd been sort of relocated to right-back, initially, you know, as, as a makeshift position, but he really he really did establish himself in that role. And Luke going on at right-back, ever since, for me, has been a really solid part of that team. You know, he, he makes a lot of good runs forward. He's strong in the tackle. He, he plays very conventionally as a wing back, and he does it very well one thing that jack ross did try and do and one thing that parkinson plays to as well is a lot of actions from the wing a lot of sort of wingers getting forwards the full back overlapping we'll have human gooch on one side doing that and then normally luke one nine and another winger on the other and for all intents and purposes it's worked effectively and it's and it, it's worked to to luke one nine's most prominent attributes so I think once he himself was able to settle and he himself was able to realise right I've got my role I've got my strengths and I can use them to their best advantage here it, it, it it worked for him.
0: Yeah, something we seized upon when we were watching the, uh, yeah. the doc was the shrine that Luke O'Nine... Uh, there was a shrine to Luke O'Nine in one of the fans' houses. I'm not sure if you saw that in the <laughs> episode. You, you haven't installed one of those, have you? But I, I guess it, it's, I haven't, no. it, it speaks to how good he is, though, uh, outside of the club in terms of with fans, etc. He seems to really get involved with that.
2: Yeah, and I, I'm basing it just on what I've, I've seen, which is as much as what everyone else has seen watching the documentary, but he's just got no... He seems to have just no ego about him. Like, I really just humble, down-to-earth, grounded, professional figure. It's an example that sounds a bit like a joke, but honestly, it's another of the first or second episode when Luke 09 is helping out with the, the changing of the seats yeah. with the fans, and then one of the fans <laughs> goes, yeah, you can get this photo one, dear, when you're famous, son. And, like, you know, it's obviously yeah. it's, it's seen <laughs> as a joke, but, like, Luke, but he just laughs it off. You know, you can see from his expression that he just finds that funny. You know, like, he doesn't ever feel, like, threatened based on his sort of stature as a footballer. In an age where perhaps a lot of footballers would be like that, I mean, this is the same Sunderland who three years ago at the time would have Adnan Januzaj at the club. He'd upload training photos to his Instagram when he'd edit off the Sunderland badge. And you know, you just, you just, you'd you oh, look God. and you just think, you absolute, you know, <laughs> you know that, that's yeah. just. I mean, I obviously you're dropping quality quite significantly from the Premier League to League One, but what you're gaining, thankfully, are, are players who you know have a bit more of a grip on reality, which Luke O9 most certainly
1: does. No, that's cool. I think the the round off this play a bit. Uh, Jack Baldwin, I think, is probably a guy worth mentioning because he uh, at the beginning he and his kind of family were used as a way of kind of illustrating that difference between the Premier League player and the player and kind of a journeyman in League One. And obviously, kind of towards the end of the season, uh, the Flanagan Baldwin uh, axis in the centre of defence just, just hasn't worked, and and Baldwin's the one who takes the hit. I mean, I, I think he's left now, hasn't he? I think he's gone to Salford or something like that, and. You guys in the pod mentioned that he kind of lacked that kind of bit of star quality that, that I guess it, it, you need to, to kind of be a Sunderland player. I mean, was how he came across in the, in the show similar to how he played?
2: Yeah, I think so. Um, in his first few games that we saw from Baldwin, he looked like a really astute signing. He, his, his defensive displays were really solid. He, he seemed to really take to the environment. You know, initially, we could say nothing but good about, about Jack Baldwin. But unfortunately, as the seasons went on, a lot of mistakes were made. And I think certainly um, an element of his character was exposed in that the confidence was drained from him, as it so often can be, I think, from players when they play in an environment like, like the Stadium of Light. We've interviewed quite a lot of players um, for, for the site. And one thing that they always say without doubt is that Sunderland is the best and the worst team To play for as a player because when things are going well you're untouchable and when things are going badly you know the environment can just be brutal to have to play your football in and I would imagine for for Baldwin when the going got tough that that became quite a burden to take on his shoulders and with absolutely no disrespect to the clubs he played for prior which off the top of my head I know are Hartlepool and Peterborough those are clubs which generally don't Command as much of a following, especially at home, as Sunderland, and I would imagine that you know, with the weight of expectations, especially considering that season, how many sort of high-caliber, high-profile games were played. You know, two at Wembley. You know, you there was a playoff run. There were loads of sort of like promotion six-pointers along the way. <clears throat> I could imagine that a lot of that would would, would get to you, and certainly I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't blame him at all if if he really felt the pressure from that. And you know, in, in an age where Obviously, mental health is very important. I think a lot of consideration has to be given to players who, obviously, are certainly feeling the heat with such a sudden jump in the intensity and the, the raw dedication of a fan base. To let the players know exactly how they feel at that time, which rightly or wrongly, Sunderland fans most certainly do.
3: Yeah, you do see that a little bit with um, with Baldwin and Flanagan, don't you? In the uh, the documentary and uh, mm. just how they're kind of not really cut out for, you know, playing for such a big club. Um, like Sunderland, but um, moving on to the ownership and just how I guess they're portrayed um, in the documentary as well. Um, starting with Stuart Donald, I guess he's quite interesting because obviously, you know, we do kind of when we discussed it, we did kind of blame him saw him as the ultimate responsibility for um, their failings in the, in the league. But he also he also comes across quite a, a sympathetic character at points during the the show. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, you can see to a certain extent he does sort of wear his heart on his sleeve and you know he really appears to care about the club and you see that um, especially when they sort of go off to uh, to Portsmouth for the away match in in the playoff um, semi final
2: yeah no um i think when you look at when you look at how donald himself has been invested in the club not not invested financially invested emotionally in the club certainly he's he's been with the fans the whole way every decision that he's made is clearly weighed very heavily on him and every high and every low is very clearly felt by him. He's, you know, the, I, I, I think the, the the cynics among the Sunderland fans entitled all the art they're their opinions say, you know, Donald and Donald, just a wide boy, you know, he, he only came to turn a quick profit. You know, he doesn't have any investment in Sunderland. He doesn't really care. He just wants to, you know, get the club up somewhere and then flip it for some cash and, you know, walk away with more money than he walked in with. And, you know, sir, I mean, I'm, I'm fully of the belief that Donald intends to sell the club for more than what he bought it for, because that's purely, you know, if he wants to make a good financial decision, that would be a good financial decision. But to say that Donald doesn't care about the success of Sunderland Football Club purely because it's great to watch a club like Sunderland succeed, uh, I think I think would be a lie. I think certainly Donald did care massively, and you can see that in the documentary. I don't I don't think that he was he was asked to play anything up to the camera. I think when he sat there head in hands trying to get the Will Grigg deal over the line that is genuine angst that is genuine anxiety and that is a man desperate to get a signing that will ensure the football club he owns is one that can compete for the title of the the division it's in.
1: Very interesting and I guess we spoke about Charlie earlier on just move on to him and uh I guess Craig and Gav were kind of, and I think you kind of expressed this a little bit as well, they were they were kind of grudgingly accepting of him a little bit. You know, they called him the, kind of the centrepiece of the whole series and he came mm-hmm. across as kind of uh, very well-intentioned. I think the guy said that they admired his ferocity. Uh, he has left the left the club now and left the board. Like, now he's gone, do you kind of see some sympathy for him or do you think that, it's a good kind of exit, especially with, him. we'll move on to it in just a second, mm-hmm. but probably a nice bridge to mention. Jim Robwell is all here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Popular d- on an appointment. You guys called him a screaming disaster. <laughs> and he's also called Robwell as well, which is a moment of determinism. Jay Rodwell in the club. <laughs>
2: yeah, Jay Rodwell, yeah. Jay Rodwell's back. And now he's got more control over the club's finances than he did before. <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm, I'm uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get to him. But yeah, then Charlie Methven's departure came at the right time. I think it was best for both himself and for the club that he left when he did. I think when you look at what Charlie Methvin did in, in season two, of Sunderland *Until I Die, you know, the 18-19 season, obviously he took a very hands-on approach with them, uh, the marketing, the comms and the PR. And while a lot of decisions like I flagged up earlier, a lot of things that he said had either clashed with what Stewart had said or had turned out to be the contradiction of what we're seeing right now. Ultimately, I think Charlie Methvin, again, much like Donald, was making a lot of decisions with the intention of Sunderland succeeding because Sunderland, you know, because they wanted Sunderland to succeed. When you listen to what he says about the business model that Martin Bain and Ellis Short left behind, you know, he's absolutely bang on the money. For all of Martin Bain's talk in season one about how, you know, he'd he'd sit there sort of in like his chair, slightly reclined, facing just away from the camera, light on his face, watch in full view, you know, with a sort of like winning smile, but sort of like that, that look of saying, look at me, I'm really trying here. I'm the main character. I'm, you know, like I'm this really swell guy. Please listen to Mr. Accountant over here. You know, that, that that's sort of the impression you got from Martin Bain, but then obviously Methvin comes out in season two and says, look, the model that we used to have here was, you know, what was, was a, was a failed something up to model. In, in party, yeah. yeah. He was banging the money. Um, the the, the, philosophy at Sunderland before Donald and Methvin, was that if something isn't working or if you don't want to pay for something just hand the check to the Floridian billionaire you know thousands of miles away and he'll he'll pay it off for you don't worry about money that's not an object so obviously we can't just the club can't operate like that or sustain itself and you know Methven was right that we needed to stop the club hemorrhaging money and a lot of shrewd financial decisions had to be made on the marketing front on the commercial front to ensure that the club was more sustainable. If you look at how we did uh, on the Boxing Day game at Bradford, I thought I thought that was actually fairly inspired because the, the way that was marketed ultimately ensured that we got uh, an absolutely bumper crowd. There was a, that great moment where he's talking to Oscar Chamberlain, who's in charge of the media, and he says, oh, well, look, it's, uh, um, the, the, the the previous record attendance in the league one was uh, Leeds. So obviously Bradford are coming, you know, why don't we play to that? Why don't we try and knock Leeds off that pedestal and obviously that played really well I was at the game and it went over the tannoy that would beaten Leeds and you heard that the Bradford fans were going mental at that so even though they were losing they were they were in really good spirits and ultimately that was a really good day out and it's things like that that worked very well the issue with Methvin, um how I see it is that the, the very same documentary that highlights things that he got very right unfortunately there were a lot of like ad hominem things that he did that he'll be remembered you know Quite wrongly for for the things that he, he didn't he didn't get right, despite obviously being the sort of PR guy, there were there were things that he was doing, things that he did that a lot of people will you know think of him negatively of or will, will ruin his reputation of in many eyes. You know you, you start with the, the very David Brent esque sort of scene in episode one where he's talking about the Balearic atmosphere in the in the stadium. He's sort of like he's doing like his finger guns, walking up and down the stands, listening to listening to Emma uh, Frankie test the test the audio. And then of course on the very same Boxing Day game, he's you know, he's he's absolutely um, uh, I I forget the the woman's name now. I you know I did remember this, but he's like having a right go at her about the numbers, you know, he's like swearing effing and Jeff and saying, you know, like I don't care about that, you've got to get me this now. You know, and he comes across as a very sort of like cutthroat taskmaster, which, you know, I'm I'm sure isn't the image you would want for the documentary, but that's what he displays nonetheless. And that's that's unfortunately a lot of the mistakes that Methven made is that a lot of the things that he said and a lot of things that he did did not endear him to the fans. I think there was one part where there's one thing he said to the fan base. It was quite early on in Donald's tenure when it was emerging that a lot of the pubs in Sunderland were streaming the game's which meant the fans maybe possibly weren't going to the matches, they were watching the games in the pubs. And, you know, I can understand why you possibly wouldn't want that. You know, you're not going to make as so much revenue if, if the pubs are streaming the games. But it, he, he, would, he openly said, you know, if you're doing this, then you're a parasite. And obviously, you know, I mean, I, I get that you want the fans to be in wow. the stadium that's going to generate
1: money. Fantastic Charlie. That's you know, yeah. The, that, that's the, actually, that's something
0: you see in the League of Ireland over at home. Is that you know the the clubs hate being on the television because it means that the fans don't turn up, and that's the revenue is their lifeblood. But I don't even think I've heard them go for the parasite line. That's pretty no, yeah, and it's
2: it's very, things very like it, yeah, yeah. It, well, and and it's it's strong things like that really that, that ultimately ultimately of tarnished a lot of the things that Charlie's done because the the way I see it is that a lot of decisions he's made. Have have been ones that have been beneficial for the club. You know, like I said, the examples I mentioned, he did get quite a few things right, but a lot of had home and problems like those are what have ruined his reputation in the eyes of many Sunderland fans. And I think when he announced that he was going to step away from the board, I think a lot of fans weren't weren't unhappy when he did so.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: He did seem a very sort of divisive character, and and, and certainly got a few people uh, riled up, like uh, Sophie Ashcroft, as you, as you mentioned. He did, didn't yeah, like Yeah, him that's the lot. name. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think ultimately, I mean, whilst we might not have liked him as a personal, <laughs> personally, mm-hmm. as you said, he's not doesn't seem the nicest guy. He, he did ultimately get results, and uh, some of his uh, successful projects, like the Boxing Day, was he, he was basically the brains behind that, and a lot of his ideas in terms of cost cutting and, and saving money for the club example again in the cryo chamber which was ultimately only there for, for Martin Bain's back as we found <laughs> out um, in the last yeah, year so yeah. i feel like you know he did he did achieve his goals and it was a, it was quite interesting actually you know in terms of the will grig transfer We didn't really see charlie's true reaction to that but i felt like it was almost in the face of everything that charlie had been trying to prevent you know the piss take party spending mm-hmm. Stupid money that wasn't worth it and just someone just paying the bill and that was kind of in the face of what he was trying to achieve in terms of cutting costs so that that was quite interesting it kind of links in a little bit with um, his departure and, and the financial situation for the for the club now as well because obviously I, don't, I didn't really know the circumstance around his departure if it was like a, a fallout with Stewart or any of the other sort of Eastley lots or or what happened exactly and um with Jim Rodwell coming in and the Sort of the situation with the with the club now and the, the financial situation still being a problem. I, I, I don't really know um, what you think if you you know anything more than myself
2: on this about Methon's departure. Um, I'm afraid I'm not the wiser. No, um, I, 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 the, 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 there are a multitude of reasons possibly as to why he left. He he could have perhaps of lost interest. It could have been as simple as that, or it could be perhaps that you know he, he had had disagreements with Stuart Donald. It really it, it, it's up in the air, but Whatever, whatever the reason is, it, it, it didn't have a very savoury tone to it. And I think there was the, the possibility that you know he, he left under maybe more adverse circumstances. But again, that's entirely speculation. The, the, there are many reasons why that could have happened. But I think, uh, yeah, w- what you said there as, as well, Nick, um, I think if, if ever there were a set of words to precede a very unfortunate event, it was the phrase, the piss-taking party is over because quite clearly the piss-taking party is not over because it's been happening ever since. <laughs> and
0: I guess that piss-take party that you say that's kind of still going on is, I guess, what you you folks kind of view as a, a jobs-for-the-boys type scenario that's going on, and maybe a lot of people who are maybe out of their depth as well who are coming up from Eastleigh. There was definitely hints of tension between Methvin and the Eastleigh gang. And then maybe laterally, the... Eastly gang in and of themselves, and the influence that they hold, and maybe are they almost to go back to that word, parasitic within the club?
2: I think clearly there was some, uh, something of a the dynamic can't have been as strong as as what it's what we would hope it would be if um, if Methven it was it was to depart the sort of you want to say consortium that he had been a part of at Eastleigh the Eastly gang obviously to to use that phrase is completely apt. Obviously there the, there was a breakdown in dynamic somewhere down that line. But yeah, um, and the phrase as well, jobs for the boys in conjunction with the piss taking party is is a, is a sentiment that I think a lot of Sunderland fans will be feeling right now. And with Jim Rodwell, absolutely, that's what it feels like. We spoke to a lot of fans from clubs that formerly um, Rodwell had been a part of, and it had been nothing but bad news, really. I mean, he'd it, been at Scunthorpe, where they had not you know, we interviewed the Scunthorpe fans, and they had nothing good to say about him. Yeah you said county. you
0: took Boston United from league 2 to the conference north.
2: Yeah I was about to say yeah. Yeah the
0: biggest true. that was the biggest red flag that I heard of all of them
2: for sure. Yeah that's a big big yikes on that one the um you know I mean we've we've seen a double relegation before we don't need another one. And we don't we certainly don't want to appoint someone who has overseen one. I mean look uh, we we said it on our editorial pod that we did when we appointed um I'm going to call him Jim because I don't like call him Rodwell. <laughs> when we did that part I mean I'll say it as I say to anyone who comes to Sunderland is that I will ultimately reserve judgment on the the man as a Sunderland employee until he does something significant or until he's been here for an extended period of time to warrant judgment but if if we're, if we're expected to be optimistic or anything that isn't you know very cautious about this appointment then you know you people would be very disappointed because you know, th- this is another one of this is another one of them um, uh, Donald's uh, aff- affiliates, and now he's got a job at our club, and you know he's got a very poor pedigree, and and, and it does just feel like you know where's the ambition here? You know, mm. is this is you know, uh, you know, are we a club, you know, turning the oil tanker, or are we another free meal ticket for for you know mates of whoever's in charge of the club? Because that was where we were at under Martin Bean and Ellis Short. And that's ominously what it feels like round about now.
1: I can't, definitely an element of history repeating itself. And it definitely seems like uh, Stuart's limitations have been more and more exposed. Like, for, like the worst parts of the old-fashioned way uh, just leaning on a small cabal of people for information and leaning on a small cabal of people for advice and only listening to them. I was into that with the Greg signing and I think it's definitely, as you guys said in the editorial pod, come through now with the signing of, uh, of Jim uh, as the uh, CEO. I remember I, I've seen that and he said his football knowledge is second to none and he can only add value to his new employers at Sunderland AFC. Um, you know, value to the Vanarama North, hopefully not, but we'll see. <laughs> and then the final thing, I guess, this week, uh, is the final thing to ask about is the financial situation. So uh, I saw that there was a, a release by and uh, of kind of a, a lot of uh, a just last week, actually, on this. And uh, Kevin Maguire, the price at the price of football, um, who I believe he spoke to actually as well. So so he called uh, all the numbers that they were saying. He he called number one, didn't he? Because it was all just. <laughs> Um, unbelievable pie-in-the-sky sort of uh, stuff. Like, So as I understand it, what they did was when they bought Sunderland, the parachute payments were given to Ellis Short, weren't they? And they said, okay, we're going to basically pay those, pay those parachutes payments back over time. That was kind of how the deal was structured. And mm-hmm. it just now looks like it's just there's lots of money that's not accounted for basically and a lot of software shoes being used to explain where the money's gone that's my understanding of it
0: How- and an obligation was taken out of the yeah. whatever way it was structured so that there was no longer an obligation on Stuart donald to pay it back as well was a big issue
1: i think yeah so it all looks a bit dodgy doesn't it i mean i can probably guess what the fan view is but <laughs> any insight you can provide us there would be great
2: yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I've, I have leaned quite heavily on, on Maguire's The Price of Football to try and make sense of it myself, purely because it, it's like trying to sort of understand exactly how it's been structured is a bit like being led into a labyrinth. You know, you don't really know where you're going to come out of this and how well you're going to understand where you're going with it. But yeah, um, what, you've said, what you've said there, Tom, um, that your understanding of when Stuart Donald took over the club, again... To as much my knowledge as yours, that is how events transpired. The issue that we now seem to be facing, and again, this and Maguire flagged this up on the podcast we we did is that, you know, he, he as he understands that the asking price for the club, you know, is, is a very high one. And that seems to be what is holding a lot of takeovers. I think is the exact phrase he used was that if you divide the sum by three, perhaps people will be talking. But ultimately that seems to be a bit of a problem now because the, the wonder is, is why the price is being driven up. It, 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 it is, as far as I'm aware, to account for money that hasn't otherwise been accounted for. It would make sense, at least logically, if not rationally, that if a club like someone is to be sold for, you know, a very ludicrous price, then the additional surplus would go towards paying off whatever hasn't hasn't been paid off yet. But then if something hasn't been paid off yet, that brings us to the contradiction, which is perhaps the most damning of all that we've had so far as Sunderland fans, is that Methven has said that the club is debt-free. You know, again, not not sort of like argue semantics, but if it's the case that there is money not being paid off, then the club is in debt-free, not in in practice anyway.
0: Not how you would believe that or understand that when he says it to you, I suppose, is what
1: you're getting at. No,
2: no, I wouldn't say so, no.
1: It does sound like a lot of the trust has just gone now, and as you said, you've repeated that kind of cycle uh, with Mandrox and uh, Stuart Donald, as, as we've seen with uh, with the, with the other ownerships in the past. I mean, and it's really really interesting, like just listening to rap to you, and in terms of how some of them have gone. Just because I think from watching the show and from kind of talking about it over the last few weeks, we've really all kind of got a bit kind of a. a Invested in, in in your club, and uh, it's very interesting to hear what's happened afterwards. And we, we all really wish uh, Sunderland well. And I don't know about you guys, but I'll definitely be looking up your results when the football does return. Just because I feel like, but uh, for, for us and many many other people, are Stags, uh, we are the target audience for Sunderland side eye. And I think you may see a whole kind of generation of people who have got a soft spot for you guys.
2: <laughs> I mean, I really appreciate that, Tom. I mean, little anecdote to finish off with. Um, I went to um, San Francisco uh, last year. And I was just in like a, a shop buying like a, I, I was just buying something from like a, like a, like a corner shop, whatever they would, whatever they would call it, a corner shop, I suppose. And I remember, I, I think I was wearing like a Sunderland top or just like a, like, well, like a Sunderland, like an old Sunderland top that I've, I've got from like 2006. And, and the guy recognized it, like he recognized the badges of the Sunderland bag. And I said, like, oh yeah, yeah. He's like, he, he, he went to football soccer. He's like, oh, well, I mean. Not really, but you know, I, I follow. I what I love the documentary, and <laughs> it's just like you know, it was. I mean, obviously, you know, I mean, obviously, there, there is a football presence in America, but you just didn't expect it so remotely, and yeah, I mean, you know, th- there's been a lot of comments from loads of different people, like you know, such as yourselves, about um sort of wishing Sunderland well, and I think as a, as a Sunderland fan, I, I really appreciate it certainly.
0: They're definitely you know the team to pick if you're picking up Football Manager and want to you know go up the leagues pretty quickly in England. Anyway, you know there's a kind of an interest there. There's good revenue to be brought in off the massive stadium. It's an interesting club to
2: manage. Yeah, can you do what actual Sunderland can't do? <laughs> of course. <laughs>
3: Yeah, just just promote Luco Nine to the Premier League, see if they oh. can make that your ultimate goal. <laughs>
2: yeah, if, if if I can make him like a like a monarch of a small country, I, w- I would do it in a heartbeat. Like, you know.
3: <laughs> yeah, he is for sure. Yeah, that that was excellent. Thanks for joining us, Alex. That was that was really insightful in terms of um, a little bit more information than, than we garnered from, from the series in terms of what's happening with Sunderland and, and what's happened since. Just to say we are who got the assist, you can find us on Twitter at WGTN SquarePio. At WGTA underscore Nick and at FPL Stag, and on Instagram at WGTA.FPL
0: so yeah thanks again Alex for coming on it was absolutely brilliant to have you here and give us that insight and you, you fielded an awful lot of questions and talked for an awful <laughs> yeah, long it time so thank you quite so a much. bit now to be
2: honest uh, the, the type, that, <laughs> that, that, that's, that's as much talking as I'll do all week honestly <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can have a silent
0: retreat until Friday so yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so Alex is of course the host of the Roker Rapport podcast which as Tom helpfully pointed out is like the French word for good relationship so you'll find him on Twitter at AM underscore Roker Rapport and also, then you, he is part of the Roker Report, which is the overall greater, uh, I guess, supporters' uh, content producers that you're a part of. So, thank you I so much. For the mothership. Me. The mothership. That's a that's a great word. for First, yes, that's the the Roker Report mothership. So, yes, thanks so much, Alex. It's been brilliant.
1: Oh, you no, know. no problem. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, cheers, mate. Um, yeah, thanks very much for everyone who listened to this mini series on Slide Slide. It's been a great fun to do. This might be it for a little while in terms of our pods, but it looks like uh, FPL will be back uh, with before long. For the last time, we hope this assists you watch until Slide. die, and uh, yeah, stay safe, everybody. Speak to you very very soon. Goodbye. Salon. Oh, it's a goal. Who got the assist? Who got the assist?